I will save the lame, gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord from the prophet Zephaniah, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you might be surprised if I told you that I have a background in theater. (laughs) Most of you will be surprised that I did not use the term foreground. My first big break came at the age of nine. Now, a year later, I was able to play Nana the dog in J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. It's a good part. But first... I was given the opportunity to play the pivotal role of the turkey boy in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. (laughs) While Nana had, let's say, more of a stage presence, the turkey boy had a few more lines, owing perhaps to his not being a dog. And what lines they were. I was given the chance to act opposite old Scrooge himself. It came at the end of the play, After Scrooge had had his night of terrors and revelations, he threw open the window and looked for the nearest person he could find. It was me. And he said, you there, boy, what day is today? And I said, to die, in a terrible nine-year-old Cockney accent. What today is Christmas Day. Right after that, he sent me to go buy the prize turkey. It was a great prop in our case. It was a giant papier-mâché turkey put on the back of a piece of plywood that was then roped attached to my back so I could kind of waddle out at the end with it for the play's denouement. The only problem with this great, great part was that I didn't really show up until the end of the play. I think I got to walk across the stage at the beginning. You know, you get this sense of a hustling, bustling London town. But then I had to just sit backstage for like an hour and a half, which for a nine-year-old is not always the easiest thing to do. So I spent most of my time in A Christmas Carol longing for the end to appear, as it were. Some say familiarity breeds contempt. And indeed, some of you may feel that way about Charles Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol. But for me, that has not been the case. Over the years, as time has gone by, I've just seen more and more beauty in it. One of you sent me an email uh, a few months ago and, and about the movie nights we were showing, and, and you said something that stuck, that stuck with me. That Indeed, I, I decided to build as a sort of foundation piece for my ministry. You said, I love how you can see redemption possible in every story. And, and, you know, if you can speak a good word to your pastors, you don't know how far that goes, to give them an imagination for their own life and ministry. And it must be true that participating so early in A Christmas Carol helped me to have eyes such as this. I believe A Christmas Carol, in my view at the very least, is one of those things Paul instructs us about, something true and honorable and pure and even just. Of course, as Father Lee has reminded us recently, justice requires 
a judgment. And Christmas Carol has enough judgment to go around for old Scrooge. He is condemned, as it were, for his life, which is considered grimy with greed and steeped in sin. He receives the condemnation first from his old partner, Marley, who shows up clad in chains and hellish torment to tell Scrooge of the fate that awaits him, lest he change. And then Scrooge is visited by a quasi-Trinitarian appearance of ghosts of what was, what is, and what may be. It is not unlike the message of Zephaniah. Zephaniah comes to tell the people of Israel that they are making a mockery of God's name. Not unlike how Scrooge makes a mockery of his own first name, Ebenezer, which we should know from our biblical text teaches us to say, thus far has the Lord brought us. Well, old Scrooge says, thus far have I brought myself, and I will not give any of it away. So Zephaniah comes to warn the people that they have gone off script and to bring them back through repentance into a right relationship with their God. It is the prophetic vocation writ large. And readers of the scriptures will know that such a calling may come to anyone at any time, except perhaps for those who seek it out. Woe to you if you have plans of becoming a self-employed prophet. Zephaniah is an interesting person whom this call comes to, an interesting case. He lays out his genealogy and goes back further than any of the prophets, four generations, and he reveals the name of his great-great-grandfather, a name that is none other than Hezekiah. Well, readers of the texts will know that Hezekiah was a king, indeed the king of Israel. Royal blood flows through Zephaniah's veins. And so when he comes to King Josiah, the king who sits at the throne during this prophetic message, Josiah receives this message of judgment from what we can only assume is a familiar face. Not unlike Scrooge's nephew, Fred, whom, if you'll remember, is the kind of guy that really sticks in your craw. <laughs> the kind of person who reminds you of how closed off you are to God and your neighbor because of how open they are. God, send us all more people like that. Well, Josiah shows up. I'm sorry, Zephaniah shows up to Josiah to tell him about the day of the Lord, an impending collision of God's righteous rule with Israel's sin-laden life. It is coming, and it will not be pretty. There are consequences to going off script, to mocking the Lord to forgetting who you are. But here we have Zephaniah's message of another day, or perhaps the same one seen from a different point of view. A day when the Lord will not make war against us anymore, but rather will stand as a warrior in our midst, who will fight for us, or at least for those of us willing and able to humble ourselves. Those of you who know 
the scriptures well, will know the story of Josiah, which shows up in 2 Kings. It is Josiah, we are told, who in his 18th year, the priests from the temple suddenly were digging somewhere and found that the law of Moses had been, how shall we say, very, very badly misplaced. (laughs) No one knew where they were. No one was keeping the law. No one even knew there was a law, or if they did, it was some distant memory in the back of their mind. Now, Josiah, I think it's fair to say as the king, could have ordered that this law be shoved into a deeper and darker hole or burned and altogether forgotten. Indeed, it probably would have made it easier on his administration were he to do so. But that is not what Josiah did. No, Josiah repented. And he brought the law out into the light of day. And he reinstated the observance of the Passover. And he tore down the brothels that were shrines to foreign gods. And he renewed devotion in the, in the kingdom of God's people. I can only think and hope that the message from his cousin, however distant, old Zephaniah, played some part in this story. And so we find the end of Zephaniah's story in a way in the book of 2 Kings, if we know where to look. We are told of, of Josiah, these beautiful verses. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength in accordance to the law of Moses. A good king. Zephaniah, as we read, foretells of a future day of God's kingdom breaking in in full And yet in his own lifetime, a sliver of that kingdom came to light. How beautiful is that? It reminds me of my favorite line in A Christmas Carol. Indeed, one of my favorite lines in any story ever. And it's not, God bless us everyone, which is a little on the nose, okay. No, it comes after, after, Zeph, uh, after Scrooge has, has made his, his sort of promises that from now on things will be better, gathered in the home of Bob Cratchit and his family. He begins to lay out how things are going to change from here on out. And that's, good. that's a good end to a story. It's a great end to a story. But Dickens, Dickens takes it further. He tells us this beautiful line. Scrooge was better than his word. Better than his word. Can you imagine? In a day and age when it seems that words are rarely given, much less even lived up to. Could you imagine what it would be to be a person better than your word? God, I long to be a person better than my I want you to be people better than your word. How great it is when we meet people like that. When they really do throw out the pills. When they really do hold back their temper like they said they would. When they really do give away more than they said they would. Even though they love their possessions dearly. 
a sure and certain foretaste of the heavenly banquet, banquet breaking in in our own time. And yet I have to tell the truth today. And the truth is, it is not enough. Repentant kings and renewed devotions do not undo the need for the day which Zephaniah foresaw. A day when God will gather us and bring us home. And we are still waiting for that day. And Advent brings this to the fore, that we are to be the people who wait, who wait for the day when God will show up in full and undeniable glory, who know and believe that God will gather the lame and save the outcast. We are to be a people always expectant of God to show up either in a sliver or in full. This is one of the reasons that we must stand against an idea that will be discussed at Baylor in the spring. An idea that will become increasingly pervasive, I fear, of assisted suicide. That we are those who can choose when we exit the stage. That we are those who can say there is no hope. Friends, Let me just be completely clear. It is completely against our Christian faith to believe and support such things. We must stand up. We must not let our voices go unheard. Because we are those who are waiting. Even when things seem most dire, even in the midst of of our greatest trials, not that we suffer silently, hear me, but that in our suffering we are those who speak of a coming day when all this suffering will be undone. I am waiting this Advent. And the older I get, the more I think I realize that life itself is a kind of Advent in its whole Last month, as some of you know, I received word that a dear friend of mine had died completely unexpectedly, younger than me. As soon as I got the call early one morning before Thanksgiving, I checked my phone to see the last text I'd received from him, and it was a, it was a double wound because the last text was none other than a picture of his son, born mid-October his firstborn, and indeed, his last. I was angry. I was sad. And those feelings have not dissipated. How long, O Lord? How long? I cannot write this loss off. Indeed, I will not. I will wait upon the Lord. And I know that I will wait the rest of my life. For the, for the most part in our lives, we think, you know, maybe this rough patch in our marriage is just that, a patch. It'll get better. 
Or maybe this job situation, well, a new opportunity could be around the bend. But death requires our full faith that I may go to my own grave expectant to rise and to see my friend again. I was able to go to Tennessee for the funeral. It was a very sweet time with dear friends. And these are friends to whom I owe so much. I hope you have people like this in your life. People in college, we, we just grew in the faith together. It must be said that I, I owe so much of who I am to these friends. And, it, and when I was there, I learned that one of my other dear friends, well, he confessed that he no longer held to the faith that once bound us so close. Already on my knees, this knocked me to the floor. Soon after, in fact, immediately after this conversation, we were taken to see the body of the dearly departed. There we stood, half a dozen of us in our early 30s, not prepared to see one of our own in that state. One of our party, a a nurse, cried out in just an honest lament. She said, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry we weren't there for you. I'm sorry I wasn't there for you. And I understood what she meant. For what good is it to be a nurse, she seemed to be saying, if you cannot save the life of your friend. And I resonated deeply. For what good is it to be a priest, I felt, if you cannot save the faith of your friend. I'm on my knees this Advent. And some of you, you're down here with me. Perhaps you've been knocked down recently like me. I I know some of you have. Or perhaps years have gone by and you're still waiting to see if life ever returns to the place where it once was. And hear me today, that's okay. It's okay. For our faith gives us the room to be crushed, even as it keeps us from being destroyed. And for the rest of you, we invite you, if you're not on your knees this Advent season, well, come on down. Or at the very least, do not employ simple platitudes to try to lift the rest of us up. That great German theologian and pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in one of his last Decembers before he was executed by the Nazis, wrote these words. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, to those who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and who look forward to something greater to come. Bonhoeffer looked forward to the day of the Lord as a time when all that was lost would be restored to everything that was taken, that it would be given back, pressed down and running over. He looked forward to a day where he would not greet Christmas through the bars of his cell, but with his beloved fiance, with his family and his friends. And I look forward to a day when my friend 
would be able to watch his son grow. And surely this will happen. Because if men and women can be better than our, their word, then friends, God can. And surely he will do far beyond all that we can ask or even imagine. In a new world, when kingdom breaks in in full, where there are not just no new wrongs, but every old wrong has been undone in its entirety. We cannot bring to mind any sadness that God has not met us in and completely washed away where there will not simply be new tears, but where weeping itself will be exiled. This is what we long for. And surely it will happen. Because if sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And God will renew us in his love, a love that... that that always perseveres, that always hopes, and that never, ever fails. Friends, I am waiting for that day, this Advent season. I invite you to wait with me, but I also invite you to rejoice on this third Sunday of Advent. And rejoicing, I'm here to tell you, can still happen from your knees. Because we rejoice in that great promise of God. The God who will keep his promise. The God who will be better than his word. And the Advent is long. And sometimes it seems like it lasts forever. But it won't. One day the shutters of this old world will be thrown open. And a weary voice will cry out. What day is today? And the church, clothed in splendor and glory, will respond in kind. Today is Christmas Day. In the name of the Father, the Son.